I'm going to uh, talk uh, some more. Um, my guess is it's about an hour, is my guess. And um, going to... Uh, still, it's helpful at those little breaks. Yeah, okay, so hopefully I'll throw in a few of those. Um, One of the, or a couple of the central pieces we were we were saying this morning were that uh, where there is meaningfulness for us in our life, or this word soulfulness, packed, uh, pregnant with resonance, where where there is meaningfulness and soulfulness, there is already image and fantasy, uh, mythos running for us, and it might be the case that um, where there is love, part of the basis or the support for that love is actually in the mythos fantasy. And that in our perception of ourselves, of each other, of the world, etc., that that perception itself is imbued with fantasy and what we're calling imagination and mythos at times. So here's an idea... (coughs) But I don't think it's a provable idea. It's not an idea. I mean, it might be. I can't think of a way one would prove it. Um, so it's not a provable idea. But what if we entertain the idea or the possibility or the <coughs> assumption that image and fantasy, what we're calling image and fantasy, is actually primary. And by primary, I don't mean first in a sort of... Um, process or a neural sequence of events. I mean, fundamental is a dangerous word, but more fundamental, more primary in in terms of what drives us and what moves us and what orients us in life. Primary (coughs) in giving meaningfulness to things. So this came up a little bit in the um, uh, question answer period earlier. Um, Want to entertain a certain or certain range of direction of ideas, possible ideas, in relationship to imagination. Um, But we don't need to necessarily um, adopt the more um, common idea of the unconscious as the repository of big, dark, uh, dangerous, scary forces that we hope don't escape from this uh, big, dark, scary place. don't necessarily have to adopt that as something that exists in and of itself. And in fact, a little attention will show, uh, or experimentation will show, that just like with emotions, the, rel- the, the very awareness of an image changes it, the image. It's once I'm a- aware of something, it's, it does not have an independent existence. So just like emotions, the same is true of emotions, or the kind of awareness, the kind of relationship that I have with something has an effect. So it's not really that we're talking about something that has complete independent existence at all. Um, But entertaining or leaning a little bit more to the idea that there is something primary um, in, uh, or that they have a primary place, image image and fancy has a primary place. Because what we usually tend to assume nowadays is that something like our biology has a primary place. Our emergence uh, from um, whatever the next stage up of millennia is, um, billions of years of evolution, um, and and how that has hardwired our biology, that that's what drives us. We tend to assume something like that, or we tend to assume socioeconomic factors drive us and are primary. Or we very commonly tend to assume that my past drives me, um, as a very common psychotherapeutic assumption, or more than psychotherapeutic, so that what, how my childhood was, what happened to me, how the family was, etc. These are all very common modern assumptions about what drives us. But in a way, we're just, as an experiment, possible. What, what happens if, not disregarding any of that, but what happens if I assume something different and I assume that the image and the fantasy and the mythos is actually primary somehow, if I entertain that idea. Now, that might strike some of you as a very strange idea uh, and a very weird idea, maybe. 
But it would be interesting <laughs> to reflect, um, if we parallel with emotions in this room now, or even going down to wherever we are, Golders Green or wherever, um, and just how many people, how many of us now believe that if I am not aware of an emotion, that that lack of awareness of emotion, the emotion operates anyway to impel my mind and my body and my speech. Um, and secondly, if I'm not aware of an emotion, that there's something not healthy about not being aware of what's uh, operating for me emotionally. And also that I'm not alive fully if I'm not in touch with my emotions. So th- these are very common assumptions nowadays. How far back in time, not very far, how many years would I have to go back and say uh, this idea about emotions, which most of us would take for granted, and someone back then, a few decades maybe, uh, would say, I say that's a pretty strange idea. (laughs) Very weird. Could it be the same is true for images? What comes into fashion as as an ideology? Um, So, you know, we can and, and do and should acknowledge that images that arise, etc., are uh, arise as a result um, uh, and, and as an expression of my past and the emotions I'm feeling in the present. Images are a result, but we're also playing with something uh, the opposite: that my life, my emotions, uh, are driven by or the playing out of um, image, fantasy, mythos. Something else is what is it called primary. Whether that's <coughs> conscious or unconscious. So, like so many things in the inner world, the causality works both ways. Life leads to image, image leads to life. Let's lean on the one that we tend to lean on less, that image leads to life, that that's more primary. So, but these images are, are creations, they're fabrications. And that's a whole big thing. Yes, they are, absolutely. <coughs> one response one could give to that uh, uh, question is show me something that's not a fabrication. Show me something that's not. So we tend to assume this again back to metaphysics. This is real. That's not real. It's a lot. It's a bit more complicated than that. In the uh, early Jewish mysticism, there's there's a, a a strange idea that God is mystically dependent on humanity's liturgical praise, so that praise itself creates God. And later in the Zohar, like the Jewish Kabbalah, said, actually it's, there's a line, it says, man can be said to create God. And, and this wasn't seen as a destruction of God, it was part of the mystical uh, mystery of what God was, not a problem. But if I'm intent on this idea that there is a reality independent of my mind, etc., independent of what is fabricated, and I'm locked into certain, perhaps, modernist notions, ontology, epistemology, cosmology, etc., they might get in the way of entertaining certain ideas. Uh, last year, last year we came and, uh, came and talked about imaginal stuff, and um, particularly the thrust of, of last year's teachings were uh, images and imaginal figures in relationship to the self, in relation to the self and the sense of the self. <coughs> Um, so I'm not going to repeat much of that, but I'm going to kind of summarize a little bit of the threads there and, and move on, because I want to move on into other directions. Um, so it's there in different recordings if, you, if you're interested. <coughs> here, here's, I want to say something. So how okay do I feel? How okay do you feel with moving conceptual frameworks? Actually, moving between conceptual frameworks, adopting one, seeing what that does, adopting another, seeing what that does, without being locked into dogma or believing this is real, everything else is irrelevant or, or not, not worth considering. So this is an interesting one for me. Some, some personality types are really fine with that, no problem, very flexible, fluid movement between conceptual frameworks, enjoy the fluidity of it. And for some people, really uh, difficult. Th- there's much more we could say about that, but. What I, what I really want to get to for now, because I've talked about that in other talks, um, is we can view images that arise. Well, one of the conceptual frameworks that's possible is viewing them as archetypes, or in this old Greek word, daimons, 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 d-a-i-m-o-n-s, something um, 
in a way bigger than the individual self that visits the self that comes through the life in that sense um, this word soulfulness that I was using earlier that I've been using and I said it briefly includes the sense I think of something bigger than what the ego wants something bigger than what the ego wants um, and so it's not a melting into an infinite oneness that kind of happening of, of the self or, or a dissolving of the self-sense. Here is something more universal, greater than the personal, but still personal. So that black devil man, or I shared some images last year about warrior or wanderer or something, universal, bigger than just me, but still very personal and very unique. It's a particular way of opening up the self. Someone, John, was asking in the early period, uh, we can use images and conceive them in different ways. So someone was asking me another day, um, you know, some, let's say a Christian. So when I feel bad, I can imagine Christ and that he comforts me or something. Or if I'm feeling stressed out, I imagine a beach scene and a little drink thing with the umbrella and that, you know... Um, <laughs> And I feel relaxed. Okay, and that's one way of using imagination. It's basically in the service of the ego. But, as I said, in the range of conceptual frameworks, we can actually put it the other way around, that we may be in the, something, in the service of something bigger, um, which may not always fit the ego's wants. It stretches something. So that also, uh, as some of you may recognize this, the demand or the push of a, a, a demon or one of these figures is not the same thing as the inner critic but it can look like it from the outside so he works so hard he drives himself or whatever or pushing yourself or why are you such a perfectionist she's such a perfectionist or whatever it is it looks like the inner critic it's nothing to do with that sometimes this person it's not unkindness to oneself it's not that the person is needing love and trying to get approval of others it's not that they're trying to prove themselves it's not that they don't think they're good enough. It's not any of that. Something else. The demand, the push of this uh, other, if you like, imaginal being. And that can come through the personality. So again, this is so interesting because we, we, we tend to think of personality in quite uh, a small range of ways. So my personality is genetically determined or dependent on my upbringing, family, childhood, culture, etc. Of course, okay, very good. The word personality is from the Latin persona, which is actually Latin for mask, and literally translated it means um, th through sounding. So actors in, in ancient Greece used to all wear, have masks, and what came through the masks was the personality of the daemon or the whoever they were representing. And so it uh, literally means a mask through which sounds, persona, through which sounds, a mask through which sounds something transcendent to the human being, in, in a loose sense of the word. It's a very different way of thinking about what our personality is. Uh, Henri Corbin, I mentioned this last year as a scholar of Islamic mysticism, he's dead now, um, but he talked about this, and building on uh, a phrase of Jung's, uh, a word of Jung's called individuation, your, your task is to individuate the self and uh, grow into sort of um, uh, mature, balanced, expansive self, etc. He said, not your individuation is your task, but the angel's individuation is your task. Something very different in the conception there. It's not even any longer about me and my process and how do I feel and am I better or whatever. Whole different relationship with what's going on. Whole different way of seeing it and it opens up differently. That black devil man uh, that came to this woman I was talking about. Um, so as I said, it was a series. And after that, uh, uh, what I explained this morning, um, some months later, she uh, was going through something. I can't remember what it was. She was quite upset about something or having a difficult time. And a friend said to her, why don't you, um, you should love the five-year-old in you, or love the little girl in you that's feeling, how, however you're feeling, I can't remember what she was feeling. And she heard this from her friend, she just said, I can't do that anymore. I've just done so much of that kind of way of thinking. Um, I'm just, it's, not, it's not alive anymore. 
And instead, she turned, and she, the black devil man was there in the imagination. She looked right into his eyes, and pow! Uh, and she was shocked by how quick something happened. In a second or two, um, some kind of power entered her and dissolved what she was feeling. And very, very surprising to her. So that's interesting in itself as a sort of anecdote. But what I want to draw out of that is, what do we tend to think, again, about real here? So some say, well, the five-year-old girl, the inner child or whatever, is not real. Or maybe it is real. Or if, at least if it's not real, it has its roots in reality. Because I was a five-year-old once. Um, and how the five-year-old feels is probably rooted in how my actual five-year-old felt back in the family. Do you see what I mean? There's a subtle sense of that's more real than the black devil. Knows. <coughs> Heaven knows where the hell that is. Um, so just again to, to expose assumptions there. Um, another uh, line here is um, how I am right now, how you are right now, the patterns that exist for you right now psychologically, etc., the difficulties, the obstacles we, we, we encounter and we stumble over, are caused, they have their cause in the past. The past causes the present. Okay? It's important. A Dharma practitioner... Uh, is also in the business of investigating not just how the past causes the present, but how the present causes the present. As we said several times today, the relationship I have with the present moment um, inputs into the present moment to fabricate the experience. Past causes present, present causes present as part of dependent arising and, and fabrication. But we could also play with the third possibility, strange as it might sound, that the future causes the present. I mean this very loosely, so that when Corbin talks about this angel, it's, it's um, the imaginal being that's always beyond. I'm very much connected here, but I can never really reach that. Something is calling me to uh, shape my life, to move my life towards, and to move towards. There's a Greek word, telos, uh, that has to do with causality. Uh, I mean, it has different interpretations, but, but it has to do with the future, if you like, causing the present, loosely speaking. So we can play with that kind of idea. Part of the reason of saying all this is because I wonder, or I, I, I have a hunch, that when we feel ourselves today, when we feel self, me, what I am, self and personality, that the way we feel it today intuitively is a lot more complex and rich than at the time of the Buddha. And they lived in a very different culture. It wasn't as individualistic as our culture. You, there's, I can't think of one instance in the Pali Canon of someone worrying about their self-expression, for instance, <laughs> or, or beating themselves up with the inner critic. Somehow, because of the way they thought about self, these kind of things didn't arise. They were much more um, wedded in, in, into, the, into, the, into the community that they lived in, etc. So we feel um, self and personality as much more complex, multidimensional, multifaceted. We can try and erase it, just say it's empty, personality is to be erased, or at least not, not very uh, good, etc., uh, valuable. But maybe we need other ways to work with. And, and maybe this might offer something that instead of trying to erase personality, actually raises it up and respects it. All of it is empty. All of it is empty. So angel, demon, self, whatever, all of it is empty. Emptiness means everything is empty. So sometimes people want to say that the emptiness of the self means there is this process that goes on in time of psychophysical phenomena, consciousness and bodily function, etc. And that's what really exists. But the personality is empty. No, the process exists. Uh, the process is empty also. The elements that make up the process is empty. And the time is empty. And that frees us to use certain words, aggregates, consciousness, attention, love, personality, self, angel, demon. It's all empty. Maybe in slightly different ways, sure, but all empty. Tantric practice is, should be based, this visualization of deity should be based on absolutely knowing very well that self is empty and imaginal other is empty as well. The deity is empty. Absolutely, it's supposed to be based on that. Deep emptiness practice, uh, which we're not talking about today, but deep emptiness practice, or when things really fade, experience really fades, or deep um, samadhi practice with jhana, etc. What it can do is make everything more malleable. 
so that the imaginal becomes much more possible as a sort of life itself, self and life and cosmos become more malleable to the perception. You get a little bit of a hint of that in some of um, the Buddha's descriptions of people going very deep in meditation and emerging um, and uh, doing certain things. And also in other traditions like uh, Islamic mysticism, again, Korban, about uh, someone called Avicenna who lived in about the 12th century. Some people don't need to understand emptiness at all um, to be able to go into the imaginal. They're just fine with it and they don't take it too rigidly or too seriously. There's not the problem of identification. They've got a very loose relationship with it. In the alchemical tradition, the Western alchemical tradition, there's a, there's a teaching. It says, do not proceed with your alchemical uh, procedure. Do not proceed until everything is liquid. Don't proceed until everything is liquid. Do you understand? If there's solidity of self, solidity, I am that, or this is that, don't proceed until everything is liquid. So somehow, in, in this imaginal practice, especially with self, it has to somehow have to find a relationship with its liquid that's not solidified. Does that make sense? Time for a little pause? Yeah? Okay. So, why don't we just have a bit of silence? <coughs> There's a lot of stuff to do. Maybe just to pick out one little strand. Um, how do you feel to reflect meditatively? How do you feel uh, about the possibility of being flexible with conceptual frameworks? How does that sit with you? And if it doesn't sit well, what does it bring up for you? And if it does, what does it bring up? So just exploring this whole idea of the possibility of being flexible with conceptual frameworks. shoulds here, no pressure, despite what I'm saying. I'm just exploring and there's no sense of anything should be this way or that. It's just about you and your relationship right now with certain ideas and respecting that. Again, that's quite, it's quite a big theme, so it may be something you want to explore a bit more uh, another time. But this business about image, fantasy, and relationship to the self in particular, as I said, I've talked about it in um, quite a number of other occasions, some of which, some of those talks are on the web if you're interested. And what I really want to do today is, is move, um, move in directions that, that are maybe not so obvious. If we uh, are exposed to, let's say, the, the different uh, portrayals of the Buddha um, in his time in India 2,500 years ago, and you read, for instance, Thich Nhat Hanh's lovely, it's very, very big, but lovely biography, Old Path, White Clouds, or you read someone else's portrayal, whether it's a whole biography or just a, uh, snippets or whatever, you can't help being struck by the range of uh, what we might call the fantasy of the Buddha. The, the, the picture painted, the portrayal, the character painted, and what he was, and in what he thought, what he did, how he was, what his central message was, etc. 
quite a, a large range to it. All we actually have are uh, what he said, a collection of teachings of what he said, and actually, we don't really know how much of that he actually said. So there's certain ideas, but actually we have a collection of teachings, and we know he must have said <coughs> some portion of that, but exactly what, it's not really certain at all. On top of that, we're not really certain what he meant when he said what he said, um, because there's all kinds of differences in opinions. Um, and so it gets interpreted, what he said, what the recordings always get interpreted differently, all, all fine. But you will notice get the, 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 words of the so-called words of the Buddha get interpreted always according to the metaphysical inclinations of the interpreter, right? And according to the favoured mythos and, and fantasy and m- mythic uh, involvement of the interpreter. Not a problem in itself, not a problem necessarily. But somehow with that, we decide a priori from the beginning that the Buddha was the authority and the Buddha is right. So there's something a little circular here. You get that? Who is the object of my veneration if I venerate the Buddha? If I love the Buddha, who, who is this? If I, something in my heart, who is it? Who am I devoted to? Am I not devoted to the imaginal Buddha, really, in some sense, in some, in some? Not a problem. Only a problem if I don't realize and admit, and I don't admit it. So again, these words, ima- image, fantasy, they tend to be very negatively charged for us. I can just get a different sense. The only problem is not realizing something. Take it a step further. Is it not the case that we also, if you're involved in Dharma and you love Dharma, that we also have fantasies of what awakening is? Fantasies of what liberation looks like and what a liberated person is like, what a fully awakened being does or doesn't do, engages in, doesn't engage in, how they are, how they speak, how they whatever. Um, That cannot help imbuing the whole thing. Um, so just very simplistic, and I've talked about this in other talks, so I'm not going to uh, dwell too much on it, is does a fully liberated person, are they equanimous, unentangled, a little bit um, allowing the world to do its thing, but they stay steady, removed, unperturbed? Or are they passionate and on fire and even angry at times with, with engagement? So just to point out one possibility, there's all kinds of uh, a range of fantasy there. It comes in. It cannot help but come in. If you love this stuff, it cannot help but come in. Add to that, this goes back to the metaphysics thing. The, the metaphysics and the assumptions that the metaphysics rest on um, if you like, they delineate, they uh, direct, shape, and color, and flavor, and circumscribe what the Four Noble Truths, the most central teaching of Buddhism is. They, 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 they create what the Four Noble Truths are. So again, you listen to enough people, what's the Four what's it actually talking about? Um, it depends on the metaphysical assumptions that one is harboring. So if... Um, if I really believe, um, let's say, that essentially all of us are biological machines, uh, evolved over, what is the word above millennia? Um, eons. Okay, great. Eons. Whatever. Uh, eons. Um, evolved, we, we're essentially a biological machine. People may or may not use this. It's rare for someone to call you a biological machine. But, um, so you're essentially a biological machine. Meditation, you can reprogram the software. And maybe... Um, a little bit, you can um, influence the hardware. So certain membranes in the brain grow, or blood vessels, or this or that. But essentially, your biological machine, then what the <coughs> third noble truth means, the range of that freedom is constrained by the this fact or the reality of being a biological machine in a universe that is essentially a machine as well. If I, if I adopt a, a slightly looser um, existential version of Buddhism, again, I'm not aware of anyone that uses this language, but essentially we are born, or to use Heidegger's phrase, thrown into a situation, an essentially meaningless situation, uh, cold, dead matter um, in this universe, finite life, um, all that, 
and and where the liberation and big thrust of the third noble truth then is bearing up and meeting that essential reality. But there's no, <coughs> there's no beyond that. If the vision of metaphysical metaphysics, everything is empty, including uh, including matter, including all that, then then the third noble truth has got bigger. Do you get do you get what I'm saying here? The sense of liberation. Have I lost you guys? No? Okay. Um, did someone say yes? Is, did you say yes? No. Um, or um, what I'm really saying, I'm, what I'm really saying is that we tend to think, oh, we're all Buddhists. If you if you do, um, and and say, so, okay, well, we all believe in the four noble truths, but actually, what the four noble truths, and what I want to say, is the four noble truths are like a skeleton. They're actually a skeleton, and they need fleshing out. How do they get fleshed out? They get fleshed out by the metaphysical assumptions, because that determines what I think liberation is, what, I, what I'm actually talking about when I, call, when I say dukkha. What, what do I mean when I say dukkha? Is it all appearance? Is it just this or that, whatever? And then that correspondingly affects the second truth, what causes it, um, dukkha, and, and the path to release it. Um, or, uh, if, again, if I'm ending rebirth, if that's the vision of the third noble truth, that's tied into a whole cosmology and a sense of metaphysics. And so all these versions, all of them <coughs> say this is the truth, or try to say this is the truth, or struggle to claim or prove this is the truth, or this is reality. Some of them don't even bother to do that because they just assume that <coughs> it's true or real. Mostly that's the case if, if the metaphysics is just the one that's the common cultural one, the dominant modernism. And then I don't even bother to have to try and prove anything or work very hard because it's all just what we all take for granted. But again, there is the thrust of modern physics and the thrust of modern um, philosophy and, uh, and and also, you could say, of, of some dharma, emptiness, sin, a, a, a more pervasive emptiness. I mean, one might ask, is it still Buddhism if we're just using the same labels? Is it all Buddhism or...? That's a side question. Um, is it not the case, so some of you come to these things regularly, is it not the case when a teacher comes that the teacher is teaching and communicating verbally and non-verbally, um, also communicating not just um, techniques to reduce suffering, as in the Four Noble Truths, but also at the same time um, they're communicating a certain fantasy, their fantasy, their mythos of what awakening is, of what the Dharma is, and also of what the cosmos is. And that gets communicated directly and indirectly. And you, or me as an individual, I like certain, <coughs> I resonate with certain mythoses. <laughs> is, is it mythoi? <laughs> Whatever. Um, and that's actually, as much as anything, what's attracting me. So I don't like that one, I like that one. That, that, that mythos, that fantasy of, of, awake, of what awakening is, of what the Dharma is, of what the cosmos is. Not just the reduction, the technology of reducing suffering. And we all say, probably, in the Pali Canon it says this, or the Buddha said that. It's a way of shoring up one's own uh, position, of course, and, and sort of garnering some authority. Fine, no problem. But in all of it, there is what I would call a religious fantasy. I might call it secular. People call me a secular Buddhist or whatever. Um, I might call it secular. It's still a religious fantasy. What I mean by that is what's characteristic of a religious fantasy or mythos is that it looks backwards in time for the truth. The Buddha had the truth. He made the discovery. We're essentially replicating his discovery. Science doesn't do that. Science moves forward. And art does something very different. So there's a religious fantasy of looking backward that's wrapped up here, even if, I, even if I'm secular. Please, fantasy, not bad, not wrong. Not wrong. Inevitable, I would say beautiful. It's only not admitting it or not realizing it that's a problem. So, is it not the case, here's a question for you, is it not the case that if you love the Dharma, some of you may be so new that you're not even sure if you love the Dharma yet or whatever, but if you love the Dharma, is it really the case that after a while it's not, it's not that you're just looking for ways of reducing suffering? I mean, certainly that's part of it. Of course it's part of it. But is it not the case 
that you're also loving the particular kinds of beauty that speak to you. Is that not also what's going on? That there's a lot more about beauty here uh, that's actually already going on. The, the expressions of beauty that touches you, whether it's gentleness, a certain style of gentleness or kindness or um, renunciation, whatever. And the mythos, that there's a mythos if we, that has to do with the past and the tradition, running into the present and perhaps into the future, the self on a journey, it's a, it's a mythos, all that. Um, the styles of existence, styles of existence and teachers. And all of that creates a mythos and, and certain beauties, which, we, which is part of what we love when we love the Dharma. And that includes, uh, if you like, a, a kind of cosmos, a kind of cosmological uh, sensibility or, or thinking. So we want, in, in a way, what we want is a myth of the cosmos and a myth to live by and to live in. You could say, I'm, I'm actually trying to say this is already going on. I'm just saying, let's just be a, a bit more aware. Dharma as a mythos for beauty and for soulfulness. Um, and go back to the poet John Keats, soul-making. Dharma as a mythos for soul-making, not only or even sometimes primarily for the reduction of suffering. And that's a shift in understanding and conception of what is the ground of the Dharma. So, let's explore this a little bit. Regarding the Four Noble Truths, which are the central Buddhist teaching for insight meditators, we regard that as a central uh, teaching of the Buddha. And you can see it in a very shorthand version, which means as a practitioner, I'm on the lookout for dis-ease, discomfort, dissatisfaction, dukkha. And when I feel it, uh, when I recognize it, I know it's being supported by something, and the mind is part of supporting that. That's the second truth. And there's the possibility of freedom, the third truth, some degree of freedom. And then how can I, what can I do to uh, create some alleviation of dukkha? That's the fourth truth. That's a shorthand version. That's very central in the teaching. But even in the bigger version, Eightfold Path and Dependent Origination, all that, um, which we're saying, maybe it's a skeleton, actually. Four Noble Truths is actually a skeleton. It needs fleshing out. It's dependent on the metaphysics and dependent on the fantasy. How many people these days even talk about ending suffering, ending suffering, completely eradicating all dukkha. Certainly in these circles. Very, very rare. How many um, practitioners are really interested in completely eradicating suffering? I would say very few, and that's, that's the norm. And someone told me just the other day, it's actually not what I'm really interested in. It's okay. What happens when we're okay enough? So through practice and all the technologies, that's not nice, with the techniques and the practices and the perspectives that are available to us through practice, you can get to a point, absolutely, through practice, you're just okay enough. You feel okay. So people tell me this all the time. I've reached a place where I'm really okay. All that crusted suffering in my life is just, it's just mostly dissolved. You, you feel okay enough, and then what? Then why practice? What is it that's drawing a person to still practice after that? And this is why I want to say, isn't it already the case that the fantasy, the mythos of beauty, of soulfulness, the fantasy of Dharma, the fantasy of uh, what liberation is, and the fantasy of the self and the cosmos are already part of what's, making, of what's uh, galvanizing your practice? Do you see what I'm getting at? Maybe it's the case that as human beings we want and need enchantment as much as we want and need to reduce our suffering at times. At times, There's something in us that wants to be <coughs> enchanted. We want that equally. We want to be enchanted by the, a mythos, a mythos of the cosmos and a mythos to live by. Deep emptiness practice allows, um, and this isn't a talk about, but allows more choice. It's like you can, as I said, you, there's a malleability to what kind of cosmos one perceives and what kind of self. There's actually another, this is a bit of an aside, but there's actually another way of seeing the Four Noble Truths. The tendency, Four Noble Truths have heard about it, 
craving, clinging is the cause of suffering, the second noble truth. And then people are trying to live a life of non-clinging. Trying to live a life of non-clinging. How's it going? (laughs) (laughs) It doesn't work, does it? Not only does it not work, it doesn't fit. And it's... it's, it's, There is another possibility, which is using the Four Noble Truths as actually a kind of framework for investigating perception actually seeing where is there clinging right now and how does that affect perception? More clinging, I perceive self and the world in a certain way, less clinging, less and less and less and less, and learning how to play with all that. And what does it tell me about my, my, my perception of self and, and the world and the cosmos? I understand it's dependent on clinging. This is, we're not going to get into this, but um, pers- I'm understanding something about perception um, tells me of the emptiness of everything and that opens up possibilities. That's a different way of seeing the, what the Four Noble Truths are as opposed to trying to live a life of non-clinging. There is still metaphysics involved in that route. There's still metaphysical assumptions can't get away from some assumptions. Um, <coughs> so maybe at times uh, ending suffering is not really what it's about. And even reducing suffering, uh, reducing dukkha, for us is not really primary. But the mythos, the fantasy of the cosmos, of the self, of the Dharma is what's primary. So even what I was calling the existentialist version of the Dharma, um, I would say there's actually an enchantment there for whoever has has that picture of the Dharma. One is actually enchanted by the, um, if you like, the, the task or the journey of the self to bear up and to face the reality of the existential limitations, the finiteness, the meaninglessness, the etc. One is enchanted by, albeit a, a fairly um, grim and basic looking um, uh, cosmos and, and, and self and Dharma. But again we say sometimes that that cosmos is based on a certain idea, subliminally often, of what matter is, which is not really tenable, etc., etc. And one way of knowing reality, which again is, is it's, uh, it's a bit out of date, the idea that you can only know reality one way. Now, these philosophers uh, acknowledge that there's multiple perspectives, you know, multiple ways of knowing, and they're all important <coughs> in their place. So, fine, if one is enchanted by that version of existential dharma, absolutely fine. Just, just I, I don't know that one can stamp a claim of, of, of truth or reality. This is the truth, this is right. No, but if it enchants you, fine. Problem with it is it, it, part of the enchantment rests on this is truth, this is absolutely true, and I'm facing the truth. And again, the myth is no myth. I think it's time for a, a short break. Um, Let's have a bit of... Or do you want to stand up? Do we need a bit of energy? Is, yeah? So let's stand. Yeah, and just let your body stretch, but bring the mindfulness to the stretching or the moving or whatever you need to do. <coughs> Be really present in the body just as much as you can to the sensations and let the body do what it needs to do and move how it needs to move. sitting posture.
So, <clears throat> the last little segment. Um, so, regarding imaginal work or imaginal practice and the reduction of suffering, um, this is quite interesting. And again, we said there's so many uh, possible conceptual frameworks we can have of images and what they are and what their reality is and what their relationship with self is. And to me, I said this uh, when John asked a question earlier in the Q&A, to me that ends up being the most interesting thing about all this, about imaginal work, is actually the conceptual frameworks that one plays with rather than the images themselves. Um, But um, choosing that uh, perhaps more far-out conceptual framework the idea that, um, or, or adopting a kind of work with images, at times at least, that includes the view of them having a kind of archetypal or bigger than the self, bigger than this small psyche um, significance um, of daemons, if you like, um, that there are more primary, or image as epiphany. Epiphany means the, the appearance of a god. Uh, any of any divine and numinousness, um, image as epiphany, or to quote um, Samuel Taylor Col- Coleridge, the poet and the philosopher, um, the essential mark of the image. He uses the word symbol. Sometimes people use those words. So the essential mark of the image is the reflection of the eternal in and through the temporal. So this is loose poetic language here, um, but it. it Influences the whole the whole way things unfold or don't unfold. Could you just quote that again, please? Um, the essential mark of the image um, is the reflection of the eternal in and through the temporal. In and through the temporal. T- temporal. Uh, what what is of time? Yeah. Um, so he uses the word symbol. So some, there's a problem with vocabulary here, but but uh, he's talking about the same thing. So using images that way actually will tend, my experience is working with people, is it will tend to um, help see the emptiness of self, help dissolve the solidity of of the ego, uh, and and also reduce suffering in all kinds of ways. Um, That kind of image work uh, dissolves the concretization of, of self and ego and also of world. And that in one way of thinking about what the Dharma is, is that's part of deep liberation. That's exactly what's part of deep liberation, this deconcretization of self and world. So can do all that, and we can see it that way and use it that way, or, or and or, we can use it with another objective, uh, not to end suffering. It's not in the service of ending suffering, not, not even thinking of that. Not having a goal in regards to the images that come of trying to balance them. I balance the um, virgin with the mother and the warrior with the uh, monk or, or whatever and the uh, child with the sage, uh, old sage figure or whatever. I have this balance and this subordinated to the self, to the ego and integrated, which actually ends up a lot of time meaning subordinated to some chief executive officer here of the self, and not using them in, in, in a sense of a narrative of, of this um, moving towards some happy ending, necessarily, and I- I engineering the images to go towards some happy uh, ending of what the ego thinks is a nice thing. But rather, the objective being, what again, to quote John Keats, soul-making, soulfulness-making, different way of relating to the whole thing that we're doing. Uh, why? Or why do we need images to do that? Well, because partly they may be what are calling primary and fundamental, but also because they hold so much. Go back to what I said at the beginning of the day. There's something about the image that constellates in a very powerful, condensed way so much and so much that unfolds beauty or presents beauty, opens beauty and fulfillment which is a different thing than ending suffering. How many people are parents? Has parenting uh, reduced your suffering? 
<laughs> Has it perhaps, though, would you... You don't have to answer this. Would you, if you went back in time, not choose not to be a parent? No. Why? Because it's given you something. What's that something? What's the word for it? You don't... No. Yeah, okay. But something that's beyond not suffering. Mm-hmm. Fulfillment is the word that I was looking for. But yeah, love, fulfillment. There's something else apart from reducing suffering that's important to us as human beings. Um, and, and images constellate that very powerfully. Beauty, fulfillment, rightness, if you like, for the psyche, soulfulness. And these things are important to us as human beings. And as I said, after a certain amount, which really, you may be new to this, or you may feel, I've been struggling with the same things, I'm meditating for years, it is possible to really reach a place of real deep okayness uh, through practice. As a matter of practicing, finding the right ways of practice, this is available, it totally is available. Um, But after a certain amount of reducing suffering in one's life, or even just at times, maybe what I'm calling soulfulness can be the compass. It's not about reducing suffering, it's about soulfulness. Maybe at times, and maybe at times that's already operating. <coughs> Is there healing through using images? Yes, you bet. There's lots of healing, all kinds of healing. And sometimes working with an image, and some people in here know this already, the image through repetition, through em- emotional contact with it, and um, meditative sort of uh, work with it in, 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 the, in the cauldron of meditation, it's like producing a tincture. Uh, this this thing gets condensed and gets very powerful. So a little bit of it, like the Black Devil Woman, she just saw it for a couple of seconds and oof, something went, like a like a powerful tincture. Um, so definitely possible, but who is healed? What is healed? <coughs> the open, possibility of opening up bigger questions. But in relation to the reduction of suffering, using image work in this way is, is probably roughly equal to um, a lot of other Dharma practice in terms of the way it reduces suffering. Um, and in regard to ending suffering, well, a lot of people barely think about that anyway. But a lot of people, it's not even on the radar as part of the mythos, ending suffering, ending dukkha. Three things, uh, three thoughts to leave you with as sort of open-ended possibility thoughts to, e- to end. Um, just to say before so uh, Dharma as mythos Dharma as fantasy if you like or as fantasies or mythoi plural uh, possibilities strange way of looking at it perhaps and maybe sounds catastrophically disappointing maybe I don't know from a certain perspective it probably will sound catastrophically disappointing if I'm assuming a concrete real then in relation to which fantasy is less than. <coughs> if there is no longer this investment in a belief in the concrete real, it opens up fantasy as something equal and available and valuable. There's also a whole, uh, but that gives a different ground, a very different ground, grounding the Dharma in imagination, in, in a very different ground, and opens up certain possibilities. There's a whole thing here that I really don't have time to get to today, but the whole fantasy of awakening that I touched on, and whether awakening is an arrival point or an open-ended thing, or what does it mean, and the plurality of that, we can't get to that. There's three thoughts, three possibilities uh, to, to leave you with before, we, uh, before I stop. <coughs> if, at least at times, at least at times, um, the Dharma a practice is not primarily for ending suffering, but rather for beauty, for enchantment, uh, for enchanting the cosmos um, and the sense of existence. And if there's a certain leeway in uh, regarding the mythos and the fantasy that's available to us of the self, of the Dharma, of the cosmos, etc., then Dharma and practice become a little bit more like writing poetry or a little bit more, let's say, like art. Art. It's Dharma as art. And when we hear that, we tend to think, oh yes, the art of calming down, or the art of equanimity, or the art of um, samadhi, uh, or the art of reducing suffering. But what if we just don't say the art of, and we just say art? The art of enchantment, partly. Art. Dharma as art. 
not what's R for? What is R for? And we could give a lot of answers and we wouldn't exhaust the possibilities of what art is for. And that's partly the whole point. When you say Dharma is art, it opens something up. That's one notion. The second, and this is something I've said before on several occasions, I might have said it last year, I think I did, I say it in different words. Is it the case then that uh, Buddhism and the Dharma has actually, especially Theravadan Dharma, has actually um, constrained to one narrow and small range um, the image image and fantasies of what awakening is and looks like as I touched on earlier so an awakened being is like this they do this, they don't do that they, they are like this, whatever and in that certain emotions get elevated given more value equanimity non-erotic love non-entanglement, these kind of things are elevated over certainly their opposites but also uh, a lot of other stuff. And the other stuff is regarded at best with suspicion. Something happens to the whole uh, navigation system there if we constrain the range of fantasy, of awakening. But is it possible that we can open it out and actually uh, include other archetypes if we use that language? Uh, broadening the images and the fantasies of what awakening is and looks like. Historically, you might, I mean, there's reasons why the Vajrayana, the tantric practices that use a lot of imagination, they actually came a hundred years later and we could uh, actually look at a lot of things there. Some of it has to do with the understanding of emptiness evolving, but um, it might also be that it was a psychological necessity in the Dharma that people felt it too constrained and so it needed the erotic imagery it needed the imagery of the wrathful deity it needed do you understand there wasn't room for it and so it had to burst it had to burst forth it had to be incorporated somehow could be and if we broaden it could we say that sometimes some of what we're broadening it to is not actually uh, may increase the suffering a little bit may not be that comfortable may not be peaceful and undisturbed that's the second thought. Last thought. Um, I actually have to say something a little bit more general before this, which is um, working with imaginal figures, in general, one finds that they do want to uh, flow into the life in some way or other. They interface with our existence, our everyday being in the world and our relationships and our sense of life and work and what we do. Uh, very much they, they want to be expressed but they almost very rarely need to be expressed literally. And I go back to the holy war thing. Very rarely they need to be expressed literally. Sometimes the expression is really quite subtle. So I have a, a warrior, a warrior. I have no intention ever of joining the army uh, or anything like that. And I've never um, harmed anyone physically in my, in my life. And I, 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 I doubt I, well, I may, but I, I uh, <laughs> it's not, it's not, doesn't seem to be part of the way that gets expressed. It gets expressed in much more uh, subtle ways. So there is that, but also, uh, and, and so th- these figures sometimes, it's as if they demand service, they demand an expression in our life. But also, as well as that, it might be just that they just matter, and again, the pun there, matter, they matter for and in the psyche, if you like, on their own level, and don't need the expression. There's another. Di- there are other dimensions to our being, if we use certain language. There are other dimensions to the being that don't need to always flow into everyday so like Meditation for life, everyday life, all very, all very much life, 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 this every day. Of course it's important that the Dharma flows in and influences and makes an impact on our everyday life. <coughs> But if we have a slightly different view, Dharma as art, it doesn't always only need to do that. It exists on its own thing, for itself, in itself. There's a part of us that it fulfills and satisfies and sings to and speaks to and gives something to and is a necessity to. It doesn't always need to flow all of it into everyday life. So we have a couple of quiet minutes here.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.